How might we rethink teaching during the pandemic from a place of have to towards get to? This episode features a Q&A session with Dr. Kristen Clark. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Dr. Kristen Clark is the Dean of Teaching and Learning at the Bishop Strawn School. She also happens to be one of the best people I know to answer all kinds of questions related to pandemic pedagogy. Some listeners sent in questions and Dr. Clark does not disappoint. Her responses are thoughtful, powerful, and not always what you would expect. For example, I loved her thinking behind why it's good to have your teenage students make fun of you sometimes. Keep listening for that little nugget. We also get into talking about how to build connections when not everyone is in the same space. And when they are, we are likely masked, six feet apart, and behind screens. We also talk about what we can do to have courageous conversations about anti-racism now, and how universal design for learning might just be one of the best pandemic pedagogy tools for this time. There is so much gold in this episode, so I won't keep you from it any longer. Here we go. Thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation, Kristen. Can I just get you to start by saying who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Kristen Clark, and I am uh, the Dean of Teaching and Learning at the Bishop Strawn School. I'm newish here. I've only been here for a little bit over a year and a half. I spent uh, 20 years in public education. I'd also like to recognize that we are on the traditional territories of uh, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and a number, another a whole bunch of other groups of people that I'm not even aware of that we don't know their stories of. And today, of all days, we also need to recognize um, the struggle of the Mi'kmaq people uh, in Nova Scotia and um, take some time to maybe write an MP about supporting uh, treaties and uh, equity. Thank you so much for starting on that. That is really powerful and a great foot to begin with. You are one of the smartest people that I know in education. I just want to start with that, no pressure, but you are an expert in many things. And I wanted to pull you on the show today because so many people are having questions about their practices that I don't think were circling around for them a year ago. I'm assuming that you're everyone's best friend right now because people are probably hitting you up for all kinds of advice and support and questions. Um, so we're going to jump right into that. And I sent you some questions in advance from people who had real dilemmas. And the first thing you said after I sent them to you were like, whoa, those are really, those are big, juicy questions. Um, so I'm just going to begin with a disclaimer to say that obviously you don't know everyone's situations that sent these in. You have a PhD in educational leadership. You know a lot of things about assessment and teaching and learning, but you don't know everything. So we're all going to take everything you say with a huge grain of salt, and we're going to do our best with what you offer us. But we all understand that you are just a human trying to figure it out like the rest of us. And last time I checked, you have never taught in a pandemic before. So we're all kind of new to this. Anything true, you want true. to add to that general disclaimer? Um, I think the general disclaimer is, is that I learn something new every day and love, love it when people ask me challenging questions or call me out on something or, or anything like that. Like I, there's just so much to learn and different perspectives and different ideas. And um, that's what's most valuable about um, these kinds of experiences is entering into a dialogue whenever possible. 
This is why you're the best ever and why you're just such a wonderful person to get to talk to. And I know that by the end of this conversation, everyone listening is going to feel the same thing. So let's jump right in. Um, I've joked often that the 2020 buzzword is pivot. I'm sure that we've heard this a million times. Uh, and the other ones would be flexible and nimble. I think we keep hearing these words come up over and over again. Um, and educators are told we have to be flexible, we have to be nimble when we're designing anything. But what suggestions do you have for teachers for designing any kind of learning experiences that could be done in person, could be done online, could be done both depending on the situation, and to actually have a meaningful learning experience in that process? Yeah, so let's, let's maybe um, pivot away from the words flexible and nimble, not to be too funny, but, um, and think about uh, the word responsive instead <clears throat> when we're planning and thinking about learning and relationships and everything else. So how can we be responsive? So you started out by saying, I'm not an expert in the pandemic, like totally not an expert in teaching and learning in a pandemic or even, you know, being able to do my normal daily tasks in a pandemic. But I think that we can use our responsive approach to students um, to help this design and learning piece. So when we truly know who our students are, are and how they're doing, then we can be a little bit more responsive. And then if you want the technical side of, of how to do this, you can go to something like universal design for learning. Like those nine tenets of UDL, shifted my world a few years ago when I started reading Katie Novak's work around universal design for learning and just being really clear and transparent with students, taking some time to like co-create what the learning needs to be like, hey, we need to show some learning about fractions. How should we do that today? And just slowing it down and being able to be responsive to students. I know a few years ago when we had that slow food movement come out of Italy and it was all in you know we need to take time and cook with local and and enjoy it's the same thing this is the time to slow down deal with what we have use some research to inform our best practices and to have realistic expectations of ourselves as well as others but i would go to uh, universal design for learning as a place to like I don't want to use it as a checklist, but to touch base in is this opportunity that I'm planning? Does it have a clear goal? Does it have different ways for kids to show their thinking? Am I presenting information in in different ways? Um, many of our students are getting a little overloaded on technology, and that's something that we know from the research that you know kids should only have a certain amount of screen time, but all of a sudden they've got a lot more screen time. So is there, a, like, is there a high tech, a low tech and a no tech way for students to demonstrate their learning? Like those are the kinds of things that uh, we can kind of use as check-ins with ourselves as we're planning. But I think responsiveness, connecting to universal design for learning and then relying on colleagues, good old fashioned divide and conquer, um, knowing that at this point in time, the lesson or the learning experience might not be the best, but it's what it is for right now. And uh, we can always work on making it better. Um, and the way that we do that is through talking to students and asking for them for their feedback. It's pretty much my answer to anything. Should we have a good assessment? Well, let's ask the kids. And you know, is this making us feel welcome? Well, let's ask the kids because we wanna be most responsive to them. That is perfect. I'm so, 
into the universal design for learning pieces that you shared with us. Like I think that UDL now was one of the books on the summer reading list and yeah. it was fantastic. I mean, I read, I'll put the book in the show notes for people to find it, but it's such a simple framework that when you read through it, you're like, oh, obviously this is all fantastic, but they make it very accessible and easy to digest and something really practical that you can do. Like it's kind of mind blowing that she didn't write it with the pandemic in mind, but it totally relates to how we need to be responsive right now. That's great. Uh, a lot of people have noted uh, that their skills in terms of technology need some upgrading or perhaps even adapting to new situations or even you know trying new things out in their pedagogies like UDL. Um, what are some suggestions you have for teachers on adapting and transitioning themselves into a different paradigm of teaching when they've been really set in their ways for many years. And this is people who are self-identifying as like, actually, yeah, I've been kind of in a teaching rut and what do I do to help myself get through it when the pressure is on and things are kind of moving quicker than maybe they're comfortable with. So a few years ago, uh, when I was doing my master's, one of my mentors at the time sat me down when I was um, thinking about 20 million different things that I wanted to explore and said, no, 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 you need three things. You need three things that you can do well, um, that you can hang on to and know that that's your strength. And, and, and that's the way to approach it. And since then, I've kind of hung on to that idea of I need to do three things really well and then add and take off of that list as I develop competency and skill and and then realize that I'm not competent and skillful in it and have to go back and rethink it but that's another thing um, so I think that really setting that limit um, and maybe actually to be more responsive to the individual it might be one or two things or if you've got a lot of bandwidth it might be a bit more but for me it was always three I've got three things that I can handle at one time and I'm going to work on developing that skill. So right now in this pandemic, like we've all been upping our game with our Google classrooms or with our learning management systems and even just extending our skill and knowledge around that has been a, a really big deal. But I might also then start to think about, well, I want to build in some playlists for my students or I want to develop a choice board um, and just identifying those two or three things that you can use um, in your practice and get to do them really well. Because on the flip side of that, from the kid's perspective, they wanna have variety in their learning experiences, but they don't wanna to have to new, some, learn something new every day. Like they're gonna be just as overloaded by the technology and the shifts in, in learning as their teachers are. So making sure that there's very, uh, you know, variety in, in the practices that you're employing, but not so much variety that it's, it's overwhelming. Um, for me, whenever I'm learning something new, I, I need to work with somebody. I need to talk it through. So I have here at uh, BSS, we have blended learning coaches and integrators and uh, lead learners. And I do not hesitate to go out and ask for help and to say, help me with this. Um, I, I need a hand. I need to understand where this is. I ask for templates. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing something that somebody else did. Like that's actually super smart and good for kids to see that there's cross uh, collaboration between and among teachers. Um, I know that some teachers uh, might feel a lot of pressure to, uh, to up their game, but I think that at this time, especially um, everyone needs to know that that we know everyone's doing their best with what they have. 
And um, if that means that you're working on just cleaning up your Google Classroom and making it an organized place for kids and kids have told you that they appreciate that, that that's probably a really good place to be right now. Um, I also think about if you're one of the people who maybe is more tech savvy or more innovative or more willing to take risks, that modeling for others um, is so powerful. Sometimes that goes to, for, for people who receive that modeling, it feels like pressure to try something new and can have a detrimental effect and with an added pressure. But sometimes it's also good to say, oh, that's cool. I'm gonna put that on my list of things to do at some point when I have the bandwidth. And then knowing you can go back to that person uh, later on and that they have that experience. But I guess when I think about having to innovate your skills, your tech skills and whatnot, it's really about relying on others and knowing that we're in this together without being too much of a cliche and not always expecting that kind of reciprocal relationship either because sometimes people don't have the bandwidth to, they might just have the bandwidth to take this time and that they'll give in another way. Um, but I think you just try three things and once you get confident, know that if you can add something else, then that's the time to do it. There's so much wisdom in that. And I feel like it inherently allows us to practice a little bit of self-care that you, know, yeah. you don't need to make a list of 10 ways that you suck as a teacher. Like just focus on three things that you can get better at right now. And then as you get better, take one off, maybe add another one on or just focus on two then. Can I yep. ask what is on your three things right now? Because you're such a great learner. Like what are the oh. three things that you're working on? Okay, well, that's interesting because um, I was asked to develop um, to develop a course for online assessment, and I've been doing that, and I'm really focusing in on having a clear organization and a pathway, kind of wayfinding in in online learning and wayfinding in um, in online spaces. So I've probably been spending way too much time in Adobe um, making cool designs and icons and things like that um, because that feeds my kind of need to create and make as well. I'm a bit of a maker. And um, then of course I go back and I get lots of feedback. So I've been, I've been working on that, like de designing really clear um, wayfinding strategies for online learning. And that's in my own little world. Um, and uh, and I think I'm just really interested in finding out what other people are doing and hearing and um, trying to amplify some of the other good ideas that are out there. So that's kind of one of my things that I'm working on is not just hearing a good idea and going, oh, that's really cool, but hearing a good idea and saying, that's really cool. You need to share that with the English department because this is what they're working on, or you need to um, talk to so-and-so because they've got this other cool idea. And I think you could put it like, that's, that for me is really, um, really cool is hearing ideas and amplifying and making connections for folks. That's so helpful and so needed because everyone, I mean, we literally are in our own little worlds now, like we're not really allowed to go and just like hang out in the hallway and chat so that you can do that work is really powerful. The, um, the kind of follow-up question that came with that one is trickier and a little bit a little bit more contentious, but I think that a lot of people can relate to it. What happens when you perhaps are okay with trying new things or adapting? And what can you do to help a colleague who is perhaps not in that same headspace or isn't open to adapting their teaching styles for this world? What kinds of suggestions might you give a teacher who's in that kind of struggle? So that 
for me connects back to the research and understanding around um, formal and informal teacher leaders. And I think I naturally built in some of my ideas around that um, previously, but just that modeling, that uh, sharing things and not expecting anything of it, but just putting it out there, um, setting realistic expectations um, for self and others, knowing when to edit, you know, like if I know that a, a colleague is working really, really hard um, and doesn't have the bandwidth to do something else, just trusting, trusting them that they're doing the right thing and knowing that it is the right thing. And then just gently supporting in any ways and being there, um, not being the person beside them saying, have you done this? Have you done this? But just being that person who's there to listen um, when they uh, when they need to or connecting them with somebody else. I always encourage people to ask, ask their students how they're feeling too, because my perception of what a colleague might be experiencing might be really different from what the students um, experience in their classroom. And so the teacher really needs to talk to their students um, to get that feedback. That's actually more important than anything, right? If I think about the my my big shifts in thinking, yes, about UDL, but it's also been things that kids have said to me that have shifted my, my thinking about um, teaching and learning. Hmm. That's really powerful. Thank you. What are you noticing works really well with collaboration in this paradigm? There was a couple of people asking about how do we facilitate meaningful and powerful collaboration? Because we know that that is something that really works in education and it feels really difficult to do that right now. Um, what are you seeing either locally in your own context or broadly in your research that is helping young people collaborate? Okay, well, students have been collaborating in digital spaces long before we even knew they were doing it, right? Like Facebook groups, um, back when Facebook was the mode of uh, social, the social that was being used, that's how people, that's how kids got together to do homework and how they got together to share ideas. Now it's shifted into, uh, you know, Instagram and different ways of communicating with one another, but kids are already collaborating. Um, and so sometimes when we think they're socializing, they're actually talking about learning and what's going on. But um, I think teachers are setting up uh, group chats and structures in their classroom for students to collaborate. But we always have to know that that's kind of like the visible teacher control. There's always something going on in the background for kids. Um, I know that my daughter who's in grade nine, there's a you know, there's a there's a discussion group um, through Instagram and they're always talking about what's going on in class and their projects through that so even though that there's these formal um, channels there's these informal channels but anyways the question was really about how we support collaboration so um, in our classes here I've seen some super cool things teachers are leveraging um, when it's synchronous anyways even when they're in the classroom uh, breakout groups and breaking out in zoom or google meets all of our students have to wear headphones um, so that they have that ability to have a conversation without being interrupted or at least some kind of sense of being in the space um, so they're doing things like that um, we also know that kids are like they, they value that um, comment in in the document whether they're collaborating on a shared doc or a jam board if they're using google you know that's the the whiteboard of 2020 is is the jam board because they can't get up to to go to the wall um being able to give each other feedback 
through things like Flipgrid and um, voice threads. Those are ways that students are collaborating. Um, and again, teachers can just ask the kids how they want to do it um, because they might have experienced things in other classrooms that actually worked for them. Um, and we also have to recognize that not at all students are comfortable doing the same thing. So although we're like, yeah, of course, I'm going to you know, set up these awesome breakout groups and I'm going to get kids to talk in them with their video cameras on. And then we realize nobody's talking. Um, and so giving kids choice, right? Maybe you want to use a breakout room or maybe you want to use a chat or maybe you want to use something else, but how are you going to check in with one another and develop some, um, some ideas or explore a topic? So sometimes going back to those tenets of universal design for learning and giving kids choice about how they communicate um, actually is also empowering for them to develop skills for communication and collaboration that they'll need beyond, beyond the pandemic. And that's so true. And just even remembering that the nature of young people collaborating is already happening and it's happening yeah. behind the scenes that we don't see. So in many ways for us as teachers, it's how to figure out how to leverage what they're already doing for our goals. Like we have to, in a way, shift to where they're already at to help the work that we want to accomplish in the classroom. Yeah, and right now, while it's still beautiful out, um, at least here today, um, there's nothing wrong with a learning walk um, mm. or letting kids uh, do a social distance walk around the block or leveraging outdoor spaces um, so that they do have that sense of being with another person, physical being with another person that I think we're all craving. And that's a really good segue into the next question that people were wondering about, because we have a world now where some students are in person, some students might be home, um, some students might have to shift between both of those settings, depending on what's going on in their family and their household and their own health and their testing and who's waiting for results and who has a cold and who sneezed yesterday. So in that kind of a framework where some people are here, some people are there, some people are shifting, how can we build really good community in our classrooms it's hard <laughs> thanks for uh, saying that <laughs> it's really hard before i even try to answer it and it's not going to be my area of strength it's just about not stopping trying or is that mm. the right way of saying it like, like yeah even if you don't feel like it's working don't stop trying um even if the cameras are off don't stop trying even if they're not responding like kids, we all just need people to reach out to us. Um, I, I'm often inspired um, by my amazing colleagues. So Caitlin Doby here at BSS is a learning resource strategy teacher. She's fantastic. And she has such a strong ability to connect to kids. And, um, you know, following her lead, it's really about creating opportunities for kids to connect with one another. And it starts off on that kind of surface level and develops depth over time. So that's the other thing too, like we can't expect kids to develop these deep meaningful relationships um, in a week and a half or even a month and a half when they're all masked and six feet away and half the time on Google Meet. So starting in with games and personal check-ins with each other and you know, asking kids for feedback on how things are going, not being afraid to be quirky and weird. Like there's nothing that teenagers love more than to make fun of their teachers. So, so just do it, right? Be funny or maybe not funny, um, but try to be funny. <laughs> and that gives them something to talk about and to bond about. Give them issues and reasons to grapple with and to make those connections. Um, and then the one thing that 
uh, we've started this year that I think is really helping us as a kind of foundational piece to building those authentic relationships is we've started using um, what the literature would be, would call a learner pro learner profile, but we call a learner portrait because profiling is a not something we want to be associated with, of course. Mm -hmm. But really, it's we just asked all of our students in the senior school to respond to some really important questions. What pronouns do you want to have used to you? What is your name that you want to be used in the classroom? You know, what what kind of learner are you? And are you looking to make relationships? And how do you best communicate with others? And you know all those kinds of things that we, you know, what languages do you speak or do you celebrate important holiday or what are the important holidays to you? Because all of a sudden, if I know that, then I can create opportunities in my classroom to be more responsive. I can uh, make sure that uh, there's an awareness of Ramadan coming up. I can make sure that I pull in texts that represent uh, voices from different places in the world. And all of a sudden, I'm not having to work so more because it's just part part of what we're doing right like that's it's just so important to know who our learners are and not be afraid and to not stop trying even when they when you think they want you to stop asking questions and get out of their business it's still important to like stick with them you're such a good mom to a teenager like I can just feel that right now like a lot of those things that you're saying are true before the pandemic hit like don't give up yeah. on your children be vulnerable uh keep trying everything show up for your kids, find out everything you can about them, use those little moments as points of connection, like all those things that were true before, I think we just have to turn the volume up on, like, we can't let this be a reason to say it's impossible to build community, but it is, you're right, it is so much harder now. And we may have to be trying strategies that we didn't use as teachers before, that other teachers have been using for years that work really well. They're like, okay, this is outside of my toolkit, but I'm gonna try this new one this year. Well, you just said something really important. You talked about vulnerability. And I think that's really, um, really important. Like I, I went to Caitlin and said, help me. I'm having a hard time <sighs> building community with, my, with a group of students. And she was great. And I've followed her advice and she's coached me through a couple of things. Um, I think it's okay for us to know that we can do that. Yeah. And to model that, to show, I mean, I just love that you said that right now in this conversation about something that you were struggling with, who you went to, how you got support. Like we all need to just normalize that. I think yeah. that just saying, I didn't know this and I'm still struggling with this is really key for our students to see this, for our colleagues to see this. And shout out to Caitlin Doby because she is literally the best. I love her so much. <laughs> My daughter does want to um, have her adopter as her second mother. I, I would support that. I would like her to adopt me as my yeah. pseudo mom, but it's great. I love her. Our children went to daycare together. And so they're like also best friends in a way, even though they're very distanced now, but I love Caitlin. Shout out Caitlin. If you're listening to this, I love you. Uh, okay. This is a really important question because in the last couple of months, we've seen so many more important conversations happening about anti-black racism, anti-oppression, how we want this to work in our world. And I hope that more and more teachers are having these kinds of really hard, courageous conversations in their classroom. But I know that it's hard when we can't always do this in person and when not everyone is in the same physical space all the time. Do you have any best practices for how to have these really kind of hard, sometimes charged, sometimes 
emotional conversations that are so necessary and so many teachers want to have, how can we do it now? That's a big one. Um, Because it was hard before the pandemic. I think that it was one of those things where teachers would say, I don't want to get into political conversations, or I don't want a parent to call up my principal to say, why are you talking about this? Or to be misunderstood. And now some teachers are even having to record everything that they do online and that they're even more terrified of having that used against them. So now perhaps we want to have conversations about racial justice and it might be even more frightening for teachers to do this in this world. Yeah, how can we not use that as an excuse, I think is what I'm wondering. Yeah, well, I, 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 well, I will recognize right now that I am a middle-class white woman who has always dappled in equity issues and tried to stay in the background so that we could have people, um, so I could learn. And, um, and that being a part of these conversations is, is important. But what's more important than having the conversation, the hard or the courageous conversation is first doing that work on self and knowing who you are and knowing that you need to recognize your privilege, your positionality, your identities, um, knowing that you're going to make mistakes and that hopefully um, colleagues will be courageous with you and challenge you and confront you if necessary on, for me, at least my white fragility, which does surface every once in a while, um, and know that, uh, that we're working on it. But I think it first starts with self and a lot of reflection and understanding. Um, and then it moves to uh, broader conversations, having conversations around um, identity issues and human rights issues needs some structure so that people feel safe and not everybody's gonna feel safe. Even if you say in the room, look at this is a safe place that does not mean that it's a safe place for everybody. Um, so trusting that, um, that just because the facilitator, facilitator feels safe or trusting that just because it's an important time to do it doesn't mean that it's going to be that important or that timely for other people. So recognizing where others are. Um, but then I really feel strongly that the use of structured conversations um, and the use of protocols and the, the use of routine. Um, I participated in a courageous conversation this morning where um, the peeling the onion protocol was used and it was it was beautiful. Like it was a hard conversation. It was a needed conversation, but the protocol allowed us to share our thinking question, come to a collaborative decision-making. I I can't speak for others, but I know that I can say that I felt empowered and had a clear sense of what to do to be um, a better equity-minded educator after the conversation. Um, I think these things need to happen in small purposeful groups, Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. like large, big PL sessions around equity don't always don't always work. They might set a provocation, but the, the real learning happens in smaller spaces with real examples. Um, and I think we just need to constantly be learning about one another, about our society, about most importantly, how kids are thinking and how they're feeling right now. The reason that we're having these questions is because kids are demanding us to have these mm-hmm. questions. I don't know of any other time really um, in my 48 years where as adults, we've all felt like, holy cow, we need to listen to the kids. But this is that time. This is that time when um, our 
when our children are telling us to think differently about our society, where we are confronting white supremacy and systemic, um, systemically. So I am learning along in this and I try things and I mess them up and I ask for forgiveness and I find colleagues to help me along, but it's really just about knowing that we need to do this for kids and trying our best. Um, somebody will probably be able to give you a list of really good things to do, but I think it's messy and mm. it's full of humility and self-learning and most of all that grounding and kids need us to do this now. That's a great answer, honestly. I think small groups is very wise and using the intentionality of a protocol, like those two small things combined, I think could really help. And again, it's not about safety, it's about creating the climate where people can feel like they can either be heard, they can fully listen, or they have the space to be able to learn and be vulnerable. That's really huge. And I'll, I'll link in the show notes the... Um, National School Reform faculty, I hope I got that right, their protocols, because if people aren't aware of them, it's just this wonderful collection of different protocols that can be used for various situations. And we use them often at BSS. And it's been a huge game changer for many people to achieve something like and I think that this is where it's different for some teachers, because they think I can just walk into a room and talk about this really important thing. And I think that's often where these conversations go sideways, because there isn't the thoughtful preparation and the container built to have mm. intentionality around difficult, emotional, potentially charged topics. That's really, really helpful and practical. And if I can just add one thing too, um, when having hard conversations um, about identity or um, issues that are are per that students will take very personally and should take very personally, they need a heads up. Yeah. Um, like they need to know it's coming, right? I'm not going to tell my students that I'm gonna talk about um, systemic racism, um, giving them a 30 second lead on that. I'm gonna tell them ahead of time and I'm going to ask them to um, check in with me and make sure that it's the right time for all of them, particularly students uh, who might be most closely affected um, by that topic because there's nothing worse than having other people other you in the room. And so we need to create extra safety for students uh, when we're talking about these issues. Yeah, I, I think that is a really great piece of advice. And I can think back to like many moments in my own teaching career where these things just happened organically or something happened in the news. And all of a sudden we're talking about something really big. And I, you know, surprised myself at where the class went or where I let things go. But just having that intentionality to say, let's couch this conversation for today and we're going to come back to it. And you taking a moment and thinking more fully about how you want that conversation to happen as a teacher, I think allows everybody in the room to be more present. Yeah, but that's just an interesting thing that you just said, right? Because you also don't want to look like you're fluffing it off if it was right. like those in the moment type things where you're like, holy cow, we need to deal with this now. But I think still still doing that same, okay, I think we're about to have this kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. Can I get a thumbs up if everybody's okay with proceeding on this? Or do we need to take a five minute break before we go? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, wanna, I don't think that kids would be too happy if they didn't feel like, our, like we were responding to them, but also mm -hmm. just creating that little bit of buffer. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think I think just remembering that you may just need to have a moment of pausing, even if that is yeah, yeah. Like 30 seconds pausing or time to properly pause while you go home and think and 
connect with a colleague before you have that conversation with your students. Yeah, yeah. That's really important. Thank you. Uh, okay, so we're coming to the end of our conversation. And every time we do this, not every time, but most of the time I talk to people, I like finishing with a ticket out the door, which is just our way of connecting to you more as a human rather than you as an educator. Not that those are separate things, but just getting every last drop of learning from you, Kristen, that we possibly can. But these are rapid fire questions you cannot prepare for. They're very silly. They're kind of a little bit random. Are you ready for the ticket out the door? Okay, okay. <laughs> I love your face. People can't see it, but you're like, mm, I don't know about this. Let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite book? Oh, um, Alistair McLeod's No Great Mischief. Mm, best gift you ever received as a teacher? Mm, time. I think it was a mm. gift from a principal one time. <laughs> they gave me some release time. <laughs> no one has ever said that. And that literally might be the best that anyone could ever give someone. Yeah. What is your favorite school safe snack? Oh, um, okay. This sounds probably really weird, but I'm all about those like canned tuna things. Uh, they latissimos. <laughs> I have a whole bunch of them in my desk. It's a nice little bit of protein. I, I love those things. That's a great pick me up. I love that. <laughs> What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? I complete my reach app, which tells me that um, my, I'm safe to come to school. That is life That's in a pandemic. Amazing. What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Um, I listen to my audiobook. So that's where I get my, um, all of my fiction I listen to. Mm. What's the most recent TV show you binged? Um, Rita, which is a, a Danish show about um, a teacher. Nice. Pie or cake? Oh my gosh. I don't even know. <laughs> Beach or mountains? Oh, come on. And I can't do that one either. Like I want to ski <laughs> and ski on water. It's perfect. Spring or fall? Fall. What would be your last meal on earth? Um, gnocchi gorgonzola. Ooh. Who is your favorite edu celebrity? Um, Gloria Ladson Billings. Had a huge fan, fangirl moment when I met her. And what do you think is the future of learning? Holy cow. Hmm. Um, so this week I um, was digging into John Spencer's stuff. He wrote that book Empower, you know, he's got all these great little videos and he was sharing, I, I watched this video where he talked about um, shifting language from I have to, to I get to. And I was having this kind of week where I was feeling like I had a lot of hats twos and wasn't seeing the privileges that I have, the I get twos. Um, so if I'm thinking about my hopes, um, where we are in teaching and learning right now and education, I think right now we get to be anti-racist educators and we get to work towards decolonizing education. Um, I think we get to focus on relationships and student well-being. Um, I think we're getting to rethink assessment. Um, you know, in secondary, we don't have to have final evaluations this year, and we're finally really digging into this assessment for and as learning. I think we get to try new tools and to kind of fit them into our bandwidth, new strategies. I think we're getting to collaborate with one another. Um, so I think that those are really exciting things, um, that we're getting to do now. And I don't want to, you know, 
be cheesy and say, oh, we've got lemons, we're gonna make lemonade or anything like that. But this is these are real privileges that we have um, right now to be able to do this. Um, and if we can, if we are able, um, they might be something that we can take advantage of. Mm. Those are wonderful words to end on. Dr. Kristen Clark, I love your brain. I loved getting to talk to you today. I'm so grateful that I know you and that you shared your thinking with us today. Oh, geez, thank you. Um, I just feel like I have a million questions to ask you now. So someday we need to flip this because I want to ask <laughs> all pretty much all the same questions. Yeah, let's do it. I know that I will be re-listening to this episode when I go back into the classroom in December and doing my very best to just focus on three things that I can work on, except I may have to edit that to just one or two things. If you found something useful in this conversation, I am so happy. That's literally the whole reason I do this show. But please share it with a friend that you think would enjoy it. And while you're on your device doing things, pop over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a little rating and review. This helps other people searching for educational podcasts find the show and gives me useful data on what is working well and what could be even better. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep trying to think differently. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.